Okay, everyone, if I can ask you to take your seats, find a place to sit down, and we're going to get going with our message this morning. One of the things when we moved here is I didn't expect us to go from such crazy heat to such cold weather so quickly. I remember about a month ago, I think being up here in shorts, and now the thought of not having a jacket seems pretty wild. I also noticed you guys are not moving around as much. Normally during family time, you guys are all around the room chatting to one another. Everyone's kind of stayed in their seat today, just staying comfy, staying cozy, enjoying this weather. But if we haven't met, my name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors or elders here at Restored. And we're in a series called About That Life. It's a series looking through the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And look at what it looks like to follow Him, to be His disciples, and to follow Him and trust Him with all of our lives to go through these teachings about really the big topics of life and to understand them and obey them and learn them and apply them and then trust Jesus with every part of our lives, no matter what it might be that He is saying. Because as Maria taught so well in the first week, we want to learn to follow Him and walk into what He calls the good life. And everything He says in these chapters, in the Sermon on the Mount, is showing us what it is to look, or sorry, to live in this good life. Now, last week, if you were here, we had our Sermon on the Mount sex talk, which was a sentence I never thought I would say, but um, we did it. We got through it together as a community, and hopefully it was helpful, just encouraging us and helping us to understand that a little bit better. And we looked at a biblical vision of sexuality and what the Bible and Jesus have to teach us about sex. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and to listen to it and listen over it, because it is a really important foundation for what we're talking about again today and in the next few weeks, and it is such a significant topic in our culture and our day. So we are kind of into part two of that message today. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 5, verse 27. Otherwise, the verses will come up on the screen next to me here. But while you're turning there, last week, as we got into part one of the sermon around sexuality, we looked at Jesus's words where he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And I said that the big idea of the message last week was really this question that I wanted to leave you with, which was who or what? Who or what has most influenced and shaped and formed your view of sex and sexuality? If you're a follower of Jesus, my hope is that it is Him and His words that have most shaped your understanding of sex and sexuality. And today, as we get into part two of this message, we're in the same passage, but today really the topic of the message is freedom from lust. Freedom from lust. And what we're going to look at in these words is that as Jesus speaks about sex and sexuality, he takes this topic from the bodies and the skin, and he goes below the surface to the hearts and speaks about us not just serving and trusting him with our bodies and our sexuality, but with every part of us, the internal and the external. So let's read this passage together, Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. It says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And as I was reading through these words, which are obviously significant and weighty and challenging, 
I thought to myself, what are the conversations you're going to be having this afternoon and tomorrow with people who know that you go to church? People are like, hey, how was your weekend? How was your church gathering? What did you talk about? And then you go, oh, we spoke about lust and purity of heart at church. <laughs> I can imagine your coworkers or neighbors or friends going, why do you go to that thing? Like, I had a great Sunday morning. I went to brunch. Why do you choose to go to that thing where you talk about these topics that feels so old-fashioned, that feels so outdated, that feels so irrelevant? But I'm convinced that the words of Jesus here have so much to say to us today. And as I was researching and preparing for this, one of the things that strikes me about this passage is that for people in the first century Roman Empire, we might think, oh, these words would sound like they were modern to them. You know, these are old-fashioned to us, but they're not old-fashioned to them, right? But for those people, these wouldn't have seemed old-fashioned. They would have seemed weird. They wouldn't have seemed like new ideas. They would have seemed like wild out there ideas that were completely disconnected from their culture and society and lives. These ideas that Jesus is speaking about would not have made sense to a progressive first century Roman citizen. They wouldn't have understood this at all. I shared this quote last week, but I think it bears repeating. Tim Keller summarizes the sexual ethic of the first century Roman Empire saying this, in the Roman world, sex was merely an appetite. Its purpose was to serve the social order. Married women could not have sex with anyone but their husbands, but men, even married ones, could have sex with any male or female they wanted as long as it was with someone of less honor and class. Which, if you thought about this as you read this passage now, makes the fact that Jesus addresses men and not women here even more significant. Let's look at verse 28 again briefly. Jesus says, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I thought that was really interesting, you know, uh, reading through that, Jesus could have phrased that differently. He could have said, everyone who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart. But he chooses not to say that. And the question is, why? Why? Is that because, you know, this isn't something women struggle with? <laughs> this is just a, a male issue? You know, this is a male sin? No, that, that's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't just saying here that this is something that men struggle with, that this is a men's issue. He isn't saying that actually for women to do this, it's not a sin. He isn't saying that women don't struggle with adultery in their hearts in the way that men do. He's trying to say something else here. As Keller speaks about that first century culture, married women would have been expected not to commit adultery, but it would have been much more socially acceptable for men. It would have been common, it would have been normal, it would have been cultural, it would have been what happened in society for men to go out and have extramarital affairs. Men were free to do that. And Jesus, into this cultural moment, speaks to the men and says, do not commit adultery. He's challenging what was normal and accepted and commonplace in the culture. Do not commit adultery. But he doesn't just speak to their bodies and he doesn't just speak to the sex. He goes beneath the skin under the surface to the heart, and he says, don't just not commit adultery with your body, don't commit adultery in your heart. To the core of your very being, honor and be faithful to your spouse, both as an act of love to them as an, and as an act of worship to God. This would have been revolutionary to the first century Roman culture. This would have been so different to what is the norm, just like it is very different in our culture today. I think today in our culture, 
adultery is far less socially acceptable than it would have been in the first century when Jesus is speaking. Uh, I'm still getting to know the culture here in San Diego, so I don't want to speak to it as much. But seven days ago in South Africa, uh, there was kind of this big social media boom. This woman named Sonia Booth, the wife of a famous ex-South African professional soccer player, went on social media and she made five posts exposing and detailing her husband's affair before she'd even spoken to him about it. And it's hit the news in a big way. There's adverts about it, there's memes about it, there's jokes about it. A lot of people are talking about this. But she went to social media and she posted a video of her husband on TV at a soccer game commenting on what was going on on the 14th of February and saying this was the day the affair began, post two. She gets into the details of what was going on, tracking maps. She hired a private investigator and tracked the maps of where her husband said he would be and where he went with this woman. She shares and shames him in the fact that he even used the money from their kids' college funds to put on this impression that he was wealthier than he was and to spend on this lady that he was going out with. And then she shares the detail, which seems to have struck a chord with our country for some reason, that she found the ingredients for cheesecake at home and got very excited thinking her husband was gonna make a cheesecake for the family. And then noticed the next day that the cheesecake ingredients were gone. So she called the husband of the woman that she thought he was having an affair with and said, you don't happen to have cheesecake at your house, do you? And he said, yes, I actually just had a slice now, it was delicious. And she said, I'm coming over to your house now, we need to talk. And she got the Tupperware that her husband had made that cheesecake in and took it home and she put it in their garage where he normally parked the car for when he came home and went on social media and blasted him. What seemed to strike a chord in South Africa was not just the fact that there was adultery, not just the fact that there was sex, like betrayal and unfaithfulness with bodies, but beyond that, while the family slept at night, that the husband got up and went into the kitchen and made a cheesecake with care and love and then left home before the family woke up and took that cake to the woman that he was having an affair with. That actually this wasn't just an affair of bodies, but it was an affair that went below the surface. It was more than just sex. And Jesus says something similar here. He's speaking not just about our bodies, but about our hearts. While adultery is maybe still pretty taboo in our culture today, lust certainly is not. Our view of lust has changed radically over the last few years. I, I remember growing up in Durban on the east coast of South Africa in the 90s. I was born in 1986. And I remember going into what we called a news agency, a bookstore, and looking at the magazine section and seeing magazines that were covered in brown paper and saying to my mom, what are those? <laughs> like, what's going on with those? Why are those on the top shelf? Like, what is going on in those brown papers? Does anyone remember that? Not a California thing. Okay, we got one in the back. This was before I even had an idea of what pornography was. But today, pornography is mainstream, it's widespread, it's so accessible on every device that we've got. These are some of the statistics that I found about pornography just preparing for today. 12% of all websites are pornographic websites. 25% of all search engine searches are for porn. 35% of all internet downloads are porn. 70% of American men have viewed porn in the last month. 33% of American women have viewed porn in the last month. This is a stat from 2010, but it says that 47% of families in the US have reported that pornography is a problem in their home. And 28% of adults, shockingly, have used workplace computers to view porn. 
what years ago might have been something that was hidden away on a shelf that was hard to reach, and actually buying that required some courage or awkwardness or discomfort. Now is something that's very, very easy to do in the privacy of your own home, on your phone, anywhere that you go. Into our culture today, what Jesus calls adultery of the heart for many people has just become a normal part of our lives, socially acceptable, ordinary. But Jesus is calling us, he's calling his disciples to a different way. I thought this was so beautiful. I read a commentary on Matthew by a writer named Frederick Brunner. And he speaks about this command of Jesus and the one before that Andy spoke on a few weeks ago about anger. And he says, this is the sixth and seventh commandment from the 10 commandments from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Do, you know, do not be angry, do not commit adultery. And he points out that in Greek mythology, Ares, the god of war, was the lover of Aphrodite. They had an affair when she was married to another one of the gods. And she was the goddess of sexual love and lust and pleasure. And what Brunner writes here is that Jesus declares war on the sexual gods, sorry, the secular gods of both anger and lust. And he writes that discipleship's first social forms are patience and purity. As Maria said in week one, blessed are the merciful and blessed are the pure in heart. And he says, being a disciple has always required being cultural atheists publicly disavowing Aphrodite, Ares, and the myriad other gods of popular life. And what was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. If we are going to follow Jesus, it means that we cannot worship and serve the idols and the gods of our culture. We have to disavow them, re reject them, choose another different way if we are going to follow and trust Jesus with our lives. What is lust? What is lust? In Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as I said now and last week, this is the seventh commandment from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments that Jesus is quoting here. But rather than just quoting that commandment and leaving it there, do not commit adultery, Jesus goes below the surface to our hearts. He goes beyond just mere external outward obedience to what this commandment means, and he goes to our hearts, to the core of who we are, and he speaks about faithfulness to God and our spouses in that place. And really what Jesus is saying is external physical adultery and internal adultery of the heart are the same sin. They are the same sin. They might look different. The, the way they might be acted out are different, but they are the same sin. They might have different repercussions. They might be more socially acceptable than the other. One might affect your spouse more than the other. Maybe it seems like less of a problem because it just involves you and the other person in your heart, not in a room. But Jesus says that lust is the same spiritually. It's the same sin as the sin of adultery just practice solitarily in our hearts. Now, the way that we define lust is important here because lust is something and it's not a bunch of other things. And I want to say this up front. Lust is not noticing beauty or even feeling attracted to someone, even someone other than your spouse. That is not lust. Secondly, lust is not being tempted to lust in your heart. It is not being tempted. It is acting on the temptation. So I want to say after today, after you hear this message, if you decide, you know what, 
I just want to get some time to myself. I'm going to go to a coffee shop in North Park and I'm going to sit. I want to read my Bible. I want to reflect on these notes and think about this. You go to order a coffee or you sit down and you see someone and you go, whoa, (laughs) they're good looking. (laughs) And they take your breath away. Maybe you bump into them and you're like struck by how attracted you are to this person straight away. That's not lust. That's not sin. That's attraction. It might be desire. It might be temptation. You might choose to act on that feeling or act on that temptation, and it will become lust, but that feeling in itself is not lust. Lust is something else. What Jesus is speaking about here is looking at someone in order to lust, looking at someone actively, purposefully, intentionally to get some sort of sexual satisfaction or gratification from them and their bodies and your thoughts. This isn't an accidental glance. This isn't seeing someone or looking at someone bent over in the coffee shop or something like that and going, whoa, and looking away. This is the second look. This is the third look. This is the stare. This is thinking about what you've seen later on, not that first look. This is a look that is driven by or led by our hearts, the the internal core of who we are, the decision-making, thought-making, will process part of who we are right at the core of our being this is driven by that place saying i want to look i want to see i want to think i want to be satisfied by this person and their body and their looks and this looking or this fantasizing or this thinking about them turns that other person into an object of our pleasure and an object of satisfaction in the harem of our hearts that is what jesus is speaking about here In their um, book, David Dockery and David Garland say that the Greek here literally would be translated, the man lusts her or adulterates her. The woman is made into an object. Lust is completely self-centered, interested only in sexual gratification. It treats other persons as things to be exploited. It adulterates them. And when the lust is sated or satisfied, the object of the lust is discarded and another object is sought. And you might be sitting here and going, Grant, I hear you. I get that. But honestly, what's the problem? (laughs) You know, what's the harm in all of this? You know, this is just you. This is just your thought life. This is just what goes on in your heart. This doesn't impact or affect anyone else. What's the problem with this? No one's getting hurt, right? Paul, in his letter to the Galatian church, a church maybe like this one, summarizes Christian ethics in this way when he says, Galatians 5, 13 and 14, For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Or as Jesus says in Matthew, he says, all the law and the prophets hang on this command. This is the core of our sexual ethics. This is the core of our ethics as disciples. Love your neighbor. Love is selfless. Love is um, thinking of the other, serving them, sacrificing for them, denying self for them. Just as Jesus on the cross demonstrated this love for us by giving himself completely for us rather than serving himself. Love is selfless, whereas lust is selfish. It's narcissistic. It's self-loving. It's self-seeking. It's self-satisfying. It's using the other for your own satisfaction rather than serving them for their benefit. 
turning them into an object of our pleasure rather than seeing them for what they are, someone made in the image of God, someone loved by God, someone precious to God. We had a cool um, moment in our GC this week. We were doing like a bit of a high-low, you know, best part of the week, worst part of the week. And one of the ladies in our group said that hers was kind of the same thing. She'd had a bit of a conflict with her husband that week. And she said, you know what? What had started out badly had actually turned into a good thing. And she looked at someone in the room who had obviously taught her this phrase. But she said, in that moment, I changed the posture of my heart. And it changed the way our conversation went. And I just loved that moment. Um, It was just funny just seeing that interaction with her and the person who had told her that phrase. I changed the posture of my heart. And it changed the way that conversation went. And that's really what Jesus is speaking about here. When we pose, and this is going to be lame and embarrassing for me, but when we pose, we put our body in a certain way. You know, we, we angle ourselves, we shape ourselves for what we're wanting to do. We, we posture ourselves for the response we want to make. And what Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew chapter 5 is changing the posture of our hearts from a posture of lust, a posture that is ready and prepared to take from others, to use others for our own satisfaction, and to change the posture of our heart, the internal posture of our lives, to serve and love and give other people, just as God in Christ has served and loved and given to us, that we would change the posture of our hearts. In the Bible, the heart is the center of a person's life. Our thoughts, emotions, our feelings, our desires, our decision-making. And Jesus is saying that the person who lusts, the person who commits adultery of the heart, has sinned at the very core of their being. In direct contrast with Matthew 5, verse 8, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, where Jesus speaks about, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. And Jesus is calling us to that. He's calling us to a purity of heart, a posture of purity as opposed to a posture of lust and sin. He's calling us to purity of heart. And I just want to say this. This is a very difficult passage. This is a very hard command. This is a very challenging thing to hear, to preach on, and to live out and follow. Reading these verses today, I'm sure a lot of us are thinking about the sexual brokenness in our pasts or our lives today. I'm sure some of us are feeling certain regret, shame, guilt over certain things that might even be going on in our hearts and minds right now. This is a passage that exposes things inside of us. And the reality is all of us use other people to get what we want. You might be the most selfless person in this room or in the world, but sometimes we use others for our own good. I've been walking with Jesus in some way, shape, or form since I was 12. Um, Not exactly sure when I became a Christian, but that was definitely the beginning of some kind of following Him. And I think if I'm honest with myself and with you today, that's 24 years of my life, that every single one of those days, to some degree, I've failed to live out this command in Matthew chapter 5. Every single day for 24 years. To some degree, there has been adultery in my heart. Some degree of using someone else for my own satisfaction. Lusting as I look on someone or think about something in my mind and my heart. And I don't want to discourage you with that today. (laughs) If, If you're new to church, if you're wanting to follow Jesus, you might think, 24 years? I thought there was going to be hope today. Like, this is not a fun, whoa, okay. 
Let's pray, let's close and go. Okay, 24 years of my life living in ongoing struggle and sin. I believe that it would be true to say to you today, to the best of my ability, that I am growing in this area and that right now I'm in the best place that I've ever been with this. That I'm the most pure of heart that I've been in my entire life. I could be wrong, but I think probably that's true. But at the same time, the temptation to lust daily is a constant companion. And I believe it will be with me till the day that I die. But despite the challenge, the scriptures give us such hope. Although this passage strongly reveals our sins and our shortcomings, although this passage strongly exposes just the failings and flaws in our own lives and past, they also show us something else. There's this beautiful hope in this passage that turns this command, or that uses this command to turn every temptation, every time that we see someone and look at someone and are attracted to them and want to lust, that every time we look at a screen, our phone or the TV or a show and see something and we feel that lust kind of like jump up in our heart, every time we fail and sin sexually or with lust, Every time that happens, what this passage is telling us is that that moment is preaching the gospel to us. That moment is an evangelist that declares that you and I are weak, that you and I are sinners, that you and I are flawed, that you and I fail, but Jesus Christ, with his great grace, has come to save us and make us new. Every time we are tempted, every time we fall, we are reminded that we are weak, but he is strong. And we are reminded that we can't do this on our own. We don't have what it takes. We're not strong enough or self-disciplined enough or capable enough so that for 24 years we might struggle with this. But every time we are tempted, we are reminded that His grace is great, that He is good, and that though we are weak, He is strong. And not only is He strong, and not only is He helping us by His grace, but He has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome sin and temptation and to live a new kind of life and to put this sin to death inside of our hearts and to make us a new creation. And every single day, by His grace and by His Spirit, we can change to become more like Him. That is the promise of the Scriptures. Every time we fail, every time we are tempted, we are reminded of His goodness to Him. And we should be tempted to take hold of him and his grace again. In light of all of this, how does Jesus tell us to respond? This is probably the most strong part of this passage. Matthew 5 is 29 to 30. Can I just say one of the things I love about this church is that most of the time we preach through whole books of the Bible. And that means that from time to time, like the three weeks we're in right now, we get to passages that are a little bit challenging. Passages that personally, I would rather skip over because they're awkward and difficult to go through, but that doesn't help anyone. I'm grateful that despite the fact that these are hard passages to read and apply and think through and preach, that actually we need to hear these and wrestle with these and respond to Jesus and his word in these. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So what do we do with that? <laughs> what do we do with that passage? This famous text along with Matthew 19 verse 12, if you want to go and look it up, moved the church father Origen, who lived between 185 and 254 A.D., 
to at first roll naked in sharp briars, <laughs> thorns, to try and deal with his own sexual passions and desires. And then ultimately, when that failed to cure him of his sexual lust, he went the whole hog and he castrated himself. Yeah, he regretted it a little bit later on. <laughs> Some of you are worried. You're like, what is the application time going to be at the end of this message? This is not trending well. <laughs> Origen would later regret this decision and conclude that he may have misinterpreted what Jesus meant in Matthew 5. And he did misinterpret it. He did misunderstand it. Of course he did, because the real problem didn't lie in his eyes or, we're adults here, in his genitals. The real problem lay in his heart. Literal self-mutilation is not Jesus' objective here. It is quite possible to cut out your eye or cut off your hands and still lust. But Jesus does command us to take drastic measures to avoid and fight sexual sin and temptation. Jesus doesn't speak tentatively here. I mean, go and reread this. Jesus isn't like a bit cautious about the way we should respond. Jesus isn't just saying, okay, let's slowly process this together and then go forward. No, Frederick Brunner says he does not advise band-aids, he commands amputations probably about 13 years ago, before my wife Michelle and I got married. Um, she was on a family holiday um, in a place called Komaki, beautiful place on the beach on the Western Cape of South Africa by Cape Town. Um, they had Christmas there with some family friends and they did beautiful beach trips, beautiful day trips to like surrounding towns, wine farms, Cape Town. It's, it's a really, really beautiful part of South Africa. But the other family, the, the father, Harold McMillan or Mac as we called him, was really sick the whole time that they were on this trip. And he went to a doctor, his mouth was just sore and uncomfortable. He went to see a dentist. They gave him medicine, they looked, they couldn't really see what was the problem. When he got back from this vacation, he went to a specialist and he had an x-ray. And they found that this wasn't a toothache or something. He had a rare form of cancer that was rapidly growing in his head. It had already wrapped itself around his eye, it was in his jaw, it was in his mouth. And the doctors had to move very rapidly and very radically to try and cut this out to save his life. I don't know how many surgeries that Mac had. I know that he doesn't want to have any more. But over weeks and months, Mac's face was completely dismantled by the doctors as they removed his eye and took away part of his palate. Today, he doesn't have this half of his teeth on the front of his face. He's missing his eye. They've taken skin grafts to cover it up. Max's face had to be radically dealt with to deal with the danger that was inside of his head. And today, although the doctors saved his life, he looks very different from the man that he used to be. And what Jesus is saying here is that we need to deal decisively and radically with the things in our life, the sin in our heart, which is so dangerous to us and our souls and our future. Jesus knows the seriousness of lust and sin, and he calls us to respond. So let's get practical for a second. How do we respond to this message today? How do we put Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 5 into practice? And how do we deal radically with the lust and adultery in our hearts that he's speaking about? In his book, um, Redeemed Sexuality, Andrew Boer gives some really practical steps on how to do this and how to fight temptation. So Lindsay, if you could put that up on the screen. He says, if you want to take a photo of this with your phone, you can. I could always send this to you separately. But he says, take out a, a piece of paper and write on this at the top, the temptation of dot, dot, dot. Fill 
fill in your name. The Temptation of Grant Clark. And then start to fill in the details. What is the setting? What is the time and place that this happens? When you experience this lust, when, when you're tempted, when you give in, where does this happen? What are the usual suspects of time and place? And then what are the triggers? You know, why does this happen? Why do you fall back into these habits again and again if you know and believe that these things are wrong and are things that you should fight? Maybe it's when you can't fall asleep. Maybe you're just up late at night. Maybe you're on your own. Maybe you're with your computer. Maybe you're feeling lonely. Maybe you're feeling stressed and you want comfort or you want some kind of satisfaction or just escapism from what's going on in your life. Maybe it's a place you go, a bar or a place on your own where you are tempted to make the decisions that you've made in the past and fall back into those same habits that you used to. What are the time and place and what are the triggers? And then he says that you should write out a realistic dialogue between yourself and the voice of temptation. Literally, do two columns down the page. What does the voice of temptation say to you? What, what are the lies or half-truths or, or the alluring comments which you hear, which tempt you to respond? And what is that kind of dance that you do? You know, the responses that you make to those lies that go back and forth, that lead you to fall into that pattern again and again. Knowing these cycles, knowing these scripts, knowing how these habits work and repeat in our lives and sharing them with someone else. Uh, I've been spending some good time with John Dennett over the last few months, and he said this phrase a bunch of times to me, I want to put it on the record. I love that. I want to put this on the record with someone. I, I want to say it out loud. I want them to know that this is something for me, whether that's sexual sin or whether that's something else. I want to put this on the record. That helps us to break the cycle and form new holy habits in our lives. And I really want to encourage some of you this week. You might feel moved by the Spirit knowing this is relevant for you. Do this exercise, prayerfully and thoughtfully. Make some time to fill this in and then ask to speak to someone and just share it. Say, I want to put this on the record with you. I want you to know these are my struggles. This is the time and place. These are the triggers. These are the dialogues that go on in my head. And ask them for prayer and share or ask for help to make an action plan where you can take the necessary steps to break these habits. Notice here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is calling us to action, not reflection. Jesus calls us to action, not reflection here. Yes, we need to know what is causing the eye and the hand to cause us to stumble so that we can deal with them. We need to do that. But Jesus doesn't say, okay, in your struggle with lust, you need to become more self-aware. So let's explore that. Let, let's explore your heart and some of the motives of your heart and some of the idols that are behind the things that you do. He doesn't tell us to spend more time praying, praying to overcome these things and to be set free. And I want to say all of those things are good things to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Prayer should be a part of our lives all of the time. But what Jesus says specifically in this area when we deal with this sin and this struggle is not to be reflective, but to take action to gouge it out, to cut it off, and to throw it away. So what does that mean for you today? What does that mean for you? I wish I could give just one blanket thing. This is what we all need to do as we leave here, but we're all different. We're all wired in different ways. We all struggle in different ways. I think for some of us in this room, it means that we need to get some software on our phones and our computers, some software that stops us from allowing our eye to cause us to stumble and look at things which are going to lead us to sin. 
One of the things I've been thrilled with since we've been here in June is the number of people I've spoken to who have just freely said, I've got the software on my phone. It happened this weekend. Someone showed me they had covenant eyes on their phone. They said, yeah, I've got to struggle with lust. I've got this on my phone. It helps me deal with the problem. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was such freedom. This is a struggle for me. So I need an action plan. I need to do something to fight it. I need software. For some of us, this could be certain TV shows that we just can't watch. And again, I wish I could just put a list on the TV and say, restored, these are the shows we don't watch. But the reality is, firstly, that would be legalistic. And secondly, we all struggle in different ways. For some of us, what we watch is not a problem. For others, it would destroy them. We need to know what we can and can't handle. For some of us, there are things visually on the screen which are going to lead us to sin. For some of us, there are things emotionally on the screen or otherwise that are going to lead us to sin and stumble. We need to know what we can and can't watch, and we need to give ourselves limits. For some of us, there are certain places we can and can't go. I invited uh, a friend to a bar a while ago, and I loved that he just commented and said, Grant, I would love to be there. It would be so great to hang out with you, but I actually have a problem with alcohol, and I've, I've got a story I'd love to share with you, but actually I'm not going to come because it's not going to be good for me to go there. I appreciated that so much. I got to know more about his story, and I got to see that he had an action plan to fight the struggles and temptations in his life. If there are places that you shouldn't go, don't go to those places. For some of us, we need to delete social media accounts or not have apps on our phone because they lead us to sin and temptation. And this is just like the old school thing that I heard when I was young. Job 31 verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? Just deciding I will not look at certain things. If I see, I will fight myself to not look again, to make the second look or the third look or the stare or to think about further. What are the things that you can do and can't do? What are the things you should stop in your fight with sin? Each of us need our own action plan. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. What is your action plan? What, what do you need to gouge out or cut out or throw away? What are the things that you see or do that are causing you to sin? And what does dealing with them look like? Let's end with this. There's one last word in this passage that I feel like I just can't skip over. I want to. This is not how I would choose to end a sermon. I read eight commentaries preparing for today. I watched a sermon on this passage. I did a bunch of research just preparing. And although Jesus ends on this word like a full stop, and although he uses this word twice in four verses, I mean, that's a pretty good percentage. I feel like this word needs to be spoken about. Although he does that, a lot of these commentaries didn't speak about the word hell in this passage. Or they mention it just quickly in passing, like briefly, like, yeah, Jesus warns us about hell and then go on to the next section because it can be awkward or embarrassing to speak about hell. And I think there's two ends of the spectrum on the conversation about hell that I've experienced in the church. Maybe you've experienced something different, but the one end is where we speak about Jesus' love. 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16, God is love. And Jesus is the incarnation of God. So Jesus is love. And we focus in on his love, that he loves us and cares for us. And all of that is so true and good. But we don't speak about hell. 
the other end of the spectrum, and I've experienced this, and I'm sure some of you have too, are churches where the word hell and the idea of hell is used like a weapon to shame and guilt and control and lead people with fear to respond in certain ways. Out of fear of God's judgment, out of fear of God's hate, out of fear of not going to heaven one day, people are controlled by the fear of hell. Notice in this passage that Jesus doesn't do either of those things. Jesus who is love, Jesus who loves you deeply, whatever your story is, is also the person who in the scriptures speaks the most about hell. It's both and. Jesus is both. And here in Matthew 5, in this teaching on lust and our hearts, Jesus, out of a place of deep compassion, not condemnation, warns us to deal radically and immediately with sin and with lust and the things that cause us to choose anything other than him. Is Jesus speaking about hell after death, eternal separation from God? Yes, I, I believe he is. Is Jesus also speaking about hell in this life? that the effects of sexual sin and lust in our lives and souls are a form of death and hell here and now? Yes, I believe he is speaking about that too. Jesus warns us, like his younger brother James does in James chapter 1, that sin grows up in our lives and that sin gives birth to death and that death wants to destroy us, firstly in this life and then ultimately into eternity. Jesus in these four verses, which really are a very frank conversation on lust and sexuality, doesn't pile on guilt and shame to those of us who fall short, which is all of us. 24 years of trying to follow Jesus and wrestling with my own lust and temptation. Instead, what Jesus does is he shows us a way to live free from guilt and shame to live free from the grip of sin and death and hell, and to live free from the adultery of the heart. And as the entire Sermon on the Mount is doing, it is showing us how to follow Jesus into wholeness and into flourishing, into fullness of life, and into the good life that he promises. And as he speaks to us about sex, and as he speaks to us about lust, and as he speaks to us about our heart, and he calls us to respond, Jesus is speaking for our good to lead us into the life that is truly life that he promises us in himself. I think we do need to respond to these words. Some of us, maybe most of us, need to take that template and work on an action plan this week and maybe share that with someone and pray that through. But right now, I just love it if we came before God and just bared our souls and whatever it is that you might feel has been highlighted to you today or that the Spirit might be doing in you today, I'd love us to bring that question or that struggle or that feeling or that need to Him and to ask for His help. And Jesus, I just want to pray for myself. And I want to pray for every brother and sister, every person in this room. I ask you for your help as we choose to follow you with our whole lives and as we continue to seek to follow you in our sexuality and the purity of our hearts. Holy Spirit, I ask you to 
deal radically with the stuff in our hearts which we can't change. The lust and temptation and desire and enticement that we struggle with, would you kill that in us? Would you help us to overcome that and to live free? I pray for that. Even the specific things people have on their minds right now, help us, we pray, Holy Spirit. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, for victory in this area. I thank you for the many people in this room who are living free or freer in this area as they follow you. And I pray for greater freedom. I pray for healing. I pray right now that you would lift shame and guilt off of people who are feeling heavy. And I pray that your love would fill our hearts. I thank you for this strong warning in your word, Lord, which is there to set us free and help us find fullness of life in you. And I pray that you would help us to respond fully, wholeheartedly to this, that you would change the posture of our hearts from one of lust to one of love, from one of self-satisfaction and self-love to serving others and loving others. Jesus, we ask that you would make us more like you and that you would help us to be satisfied in you rather than these other things. And that we would not be shaped by the world around us, but that we would be shaped by you and your word. I pray for your freedom and your healing in this room right now. And that you would help us as we take the steps we need to take to get into the fullness of life you offer us in yourself. Jesus, I thank you for your body that was broken on the cross for us. I thank you for your blood that was shed to wash us clean. And this morning as we speak about lust and sexual sin, a topic which so often makes us feel so dirty, I pray even now that you would just wash us clean and wash our hearts clean. Lord, I, I pray that we would be pure of heart. Purify our hearts and make us more like Jesus, I ask. And as we take the bread and as we drink the cup, Lord God, we celebrate that you died in our place for our sin and that you take our impurity and our failings and our sin on yourself and you give us your perfect record. That Father, when you look down at us in Christ, you see us as perfect and as pure. And I thank you, Lord, that you would help us to see, your, to see ourselves the way you see us in Jesus. And to live from that place, we ask in your name.